Welcome to Vineyard 61's weekly podcast. We hope you'll be inspired, challenged, and encouraged by this week's speaker. For previous messages, go to our website, vineyard61.org, or subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud. Good morning, Balaam. Good morning, Battersea. Good morning, Westside. And to everyone who's listening online, sorry to cut short your conversations, but here we are. Good morning. I'm Karen. I'm married to Paul, and I've got two beautiful daughters. And uh, we've been a part of this church almost since the beginning, and we've known Stephen Viv for too many years to mention. This morning, we're continuing our series on a little book somewhere near the back of the Bible called One Peter. We're going to jump straight in because there's lots to get through. We know from the first sentence of this letter that the recipients were scattered across a wide area called Asia Minor, which we know today as Turkey. And this was probably a letter passed amongst them and their communities, helping them to understand how to live out their faith in a very hostile world. In fact, Peter uses specific words and imageries to describe them that gives us an idea of how they might have felt in the language of exile, of being foreigners in a strange land. Because whether they'd grown up there or not, their new faith makes them stand out in the crowd. It may have affected what they wore, what they ate, and how they worshipped. Perhaps they no longer take bribes, complain about their taxes, or visit the temple prostitutes quite so often. At the very least, this makes them odd. Perhaps in more extreme circumstances, this creates problems with their employer, or within their household, or perhaps within their marriage. Perhaps this leads to broken relationships, financial difficulties, or even being publicly shamed or privately beaten. We know from what we've heard these past few weeks that Peter has been writing to them about their new identity and the new community that they're part of now. Most significantly, whatever their status or their country of origin, they have become members of a new family and citizens of a new kingdom. Now, this morning we're going to read quite a long passage from 1 Peter 2 and 3, which is a different kind of passage from the ones we've been looking at recently. And it's also one of those difficult sections of the Bible, the ones we'd rather cut out and put in a drawer. So I'm going to ask you to lean into this, even if it makes you feel uncomfortable. I am, of course, no biblical scholar, but one of my favorite things to do is this, because it gives me the excuse to look into topics in much more detail and read books that otherwise I might not have time for. But I have been reading the Bible for over 30 years, and I know that we are only scratching the surface of this subject this morning. However, I have listened to sermons from Rich Nathan and Timothy Keller and read commentary from Scott McKnight, Karen Jobes, Craig Keener, Paula Gooder, Lisa Bowens, and Esau McCauley. They are all biblical scholars. And since this passage is a particular cousin of Romans 13, I've specifically paid attention to McCauley's excellent book, Reading While Black, as well as the writings of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther King, and others who have wrestled with this passage during times of great challenge for the church. The question for all of us, though, is how do we read the Bible through two lenses and not get those two muddled up? First, we're asking, what did it mean to the original recipients there and then? And secondly, we're asking, once we're as sure of that as we can be, what does it mean for us here and now? So let's begin. 
1 Peter 2, 11 to chapter 3, verse 7. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives amongst the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, and honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his step. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Dun, dun, dun. So how are we doing? I'm guessing most of us feel uncomfortable with at least some of that. And I'm guessing there are two reasons. One, because we live in a progressive, liberal culture where submission is understandably a dirty word. And this passage sounds patriarchal, privileged, and prehistoric. But I hope there's a second reason why you feel uncomfortable. And perhaps that's more driven by confusion or curiosity even. Because this just doesn't sound right, does it? And if you've been around here long enough, then hopefully you already know that there is more to this than meets the eye. So shall we dive in? This passage follows immediately from verses 9 and 10, which might have been a better place to start. Peter wrote, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, 
that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The story of the people listening, and they would have been listening to this letter as it was read, is the same as our origin story. It starts all the way back in Exodus, which we did an excellent series on earlier this year, if you'd like to catch up on it. All you need to know here is that Peter is reminding them who they are and whose they are, just as Phil did for us last week. It's knowing this that empowers them to live such holy and distinct lives. And nothing of what I say this morning will matter if that truth isn't at the heart of it. This was about rooting themselves so deeply in that story, in their new identity, that they would see their lives from a different perspective, citizens of another kingdom and followers of a faithful, liberating king. But this itself was deeply subversive. Every recipient to this letter was first and foremost a subject of the Roman Empire, where peace was enforced and order was maintained by military domination, social hierarchy, pagan religion, and emperor worship. Everything that these new faith communities had to endure and resist. Peter was one of the earliest to wrestle with this tension as he walked daily with Jesus, who was on a collision course with authority from the moment he was conceived. Peter was there when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, enacting an Old Testament prophecy challenging the authorities of his time. And it was Peter who Jesus asked to pay his taxes. This is the same Peter who grabbed a sword and cut off a soldier's ear when Jesus was arrested, and then denied all knowledge of Jesus in fear of those same governing authorities. And this Peter, who was later imprisoned after declaring things like, we obey God, not man, would ultimately die for his faith, presumably in defiance of those same governing authorities. So let's remember the writer and the recipients, his obvious affection and concern for them and for their lives, as well as his own experience of living in challenging times, because these were challenging times. But if you've already handed your life over to God, what else is there to lose? This passage in particular is like others in the New Testament that takes its shape from something known as the household codes, which were used in ancient culture to address husbands and other senior members of the community on how to order their homes. However, where the household codes of the time are predominantly addressed to those in power, we see that the individuals Peter addresses here are predominantly powerless. The word at the beginning here, submission, is found elsewhere as a mutual requirement between husbands and wives, as well as those within the church. And Peter uses it later to address young men to be submissive to the elders who would have been both men and women. It's perhaps better translated here as subordination, which is not a lot better for us, is it? But it's not obedience to each other either in the way that children are instructed to relate to their parents. It suggests the correct order of things and means to defer to, to yield to, to listen to either, like a boss or a teacher. And in this context that Peter is writing, governing officials were in authority over their subjects. Masters were in authority over slaves and husbands were in authority over wives. Let's have a look at each of these groups individually. The first group, citizens, by which we just mean the general public. 
Some may have had Roman citizenship with limited legal rights, but by this time, the Roman Empire had shifted from any kind of representative democracy to a centralized, militarized imperial authority. Peter's first instructions to the Christian members of this congregation is to use their freedom in Christ as an opportunity for meaningful engagement and witness, and perhaps even to forfeit certain rights for the sake of those around them. He reminds them that they may be the subordinates in this political relationship, but they are subjects of a greater authority. Peter, like Paul, even uses the metaphor of slavery to describe the congregation in their relationship to God. To those who were slaves, and perhaps up to 30% of the population may have been, we see Peter speaking directly into their lived experience. The term slaves would have covered every type of bonded labor, whether it looked like a kind of employment or more likely involved violence and abuse, slaves were considered property. Though harsh to us, Peter's words endeavor to speak comfort, to remind them that their savior knows their condition and in fact shares it. He suffered injustice, his body was broken, and he bears their pain with them. It is to slaves that Peter most closely identifies Jesus. He took the full force of the Roman Empire on himself without retaliation. And to wives, we see that whilst Peter's words may contain a general principle, he's reaching out to those whose husbands were still unbelievers. For women across the Roman Empire, there was a very limited role in public life. And although there were women of influence and property and wealth, female babies were often discarded at birth. Girls were married off at a very young age and wives were expected to bring their husband's honor. The marriage Peter is describing here is no kind of relationship of equals, but one where wives were without agency and expected to worship the pagan gods of their husbands. Instead of confrontation, which we might expect in this situation, Peter counsels caution and encourages them not to embark on an evangelistic campaign, but to live like Jesus to allow the fruit of the Spirit, not their outer appearance or persuasive words, to be their witness, and to trust God to do his work in them and through them. We may feel uncomfortable that nowhere in the New Testament do we see outright condemnation of systematic inequality, a world which would have been as unimaginable to them as it is to us today. But everywhere we do read of women, children, wives, and slaves, we see a different kind of challenge to the social and sexual distinctions of the time. While slaves and wives were widely considered powerless in Roman society, this was in stark contrast to their high regard within the early church. We see the way that Jesus treated women, the presence of women and slaves throughout the New Testament narrative, and Paul's mandate to the Galatians, perhaps to some of the same recipients as Peter's letter, which was to assure equality within the church. And in keeping with that, Peter addresses slaves and wives directly, assuming that they will be in the congregation, recipients of his letter, participating members of this community. They belong to this chosen people. They belong to this royal priesthood. They are part of this holy nation, God's special possession. And he gives them instructions that aren't intended to add to their oppression, but to remind them that they are seen and valued and have agency, along with a calling to a greater good. And then Peter turns to husbands. 
We don't get reciprocal instructions to other authorities here, but Peter is clear about what's expected of Christian husbands, which gives us a clue, and this was just as unconventional. Peter instructs them to treat their wives with respect because of who they are, co-heirs to the inheritance that he's described in chapter 1. In the kingdom of God, they are equal recipients of this new way of life that Christ has given them. And husbands are to treat their wives differently in light of this, so that nothing will hinder their prayers. In summary, this passage reminds all the believers that whatever their circumstances, whatever is beyond their control, they get to choose how to engage with it. This isn't to airbrush their challenges. He's not asking them to grin and bear it. Peter speaks directly to the heart of the inequalities that they face, of the circumstances that they cannot change, and reminds them in the life of death of Jesus, the man he knew so well, who changes them from the inside out. And when we take these instructions and place them back in the context of the whole letter, we hear Peter's encouragement to the whole congregation, to all the recipients, to you and to I, that regardless of how the world sees them or treats them, whatever trials they face, it is about the God at work within them, their living hope. And it is that truth that empowers them to live as a holy people with a holy purpose to be a holy presence. Now, if that's something of what this might have meant there and then, what might it mean for us here and now? The verses here that have the greatest resonance for most of us, I think, are these. Submit to every governing authority. Now, I'm assuming, I'm hoping that some of you are asking, but what does that mean for the church in China right now, or in Egypt or Iran? What about the church of Nazi Germany, for black believers in the civil rights movement, for the white church of apartheid South Africa? And what might it mean today for Russian Christians or even Ukrainian Christians as they go to war? And for us, we may find ourselves a long way from those circumstances, but there are many recent events that have caused us to question authority, particularly on issues of integrity and injustice. So I want to very tentatively give some space to what this passage might say about that for us today. We may take a very straightforward reading of this text and look for the equivalent authorities in our life. That's certainly been done throughout history. But in doing so, I think we miss the point. Because our times are very different, and the passage we've read today is, of course, set in a broader context as part of the larger biblical narrative. These days, prime ministers, police commissioners, and even pastors will come and go. Their power is delegated, their authority is limited, and we're not restricted by the same hierarchies now as we read about in this text. So the context is different, but the challenge we're confronted with is the same. It's whether we realize we're called to so much more. Remember, this was not a theological debate for these people. These believers were wrestling with the surrender of their lives to God, which was coming into conflict with the world around them. And that's where our challenge is exactly the same. Whatever our circumstances, will we submit to God and surrender our lives to him beyond anything that we're used to or comfortable with? It is clear from this passage that we are to submit to the authorities that govern us but I'm kind of hoping you didn't need the Bible to remind you of that. Whenever you pay for public transport 
or keep the speed limit, you are submitting to authority. But the emperor at the time of Peter's writing was most likely Nero, who is widely accepted as the cruelest Roman emperor there was, and there's pretty good competition for that title. So this isn't an instruction to submit to Christian leaders or even good leaders because of who they are or what they represent, but because of who you are and because of who you ultimately serve. Peter writes, submit yourself for the Lord's sake and in reverent fear of God. It is for Christ's sake that we honor our leaders, pay our taxes, and submit to the governing authorities in our country. Good government is necessary to protect and provide for us, as well as to restrain disorder. So perhaps Christians should be the best models of submission to authority, the best bosses, the best employees, because we submit for the sake of our God. Our hope is not in the structures of this world or how our authorities govern. Submission for Peter was about pursuing a higher goal, a better goal, with Christ as our motivation and model. Not just to put up with injustice or to rebel against it, but to live peacefully for a different purpose. What this, these Christians were being asked to do goes against their natural inclinations. It may go against yours. But by following these instructions, they were demonstrating that God was at work in their lives and they were living by a different story. Perhaps when we submit to God, we are willing and able to submit to any other authority because we trust him as the highest authority. But is there a time when we don't submit? I would like to think this isn't necessary to say, but I fear that it is. For someone in an abusive situation where force, manipulation, or control are being used, there is no longer any question of submission. In any situation where those in authority over us command us to do something that God forbids, or when they forbid us to do that something that God commands, there is no question of submission. But many of us have been asking very real questions about our much more blurry relationships with authority as we see real injustice in the world and in the church. Many of you will feel differently about this than even as you did a couple of years ago, maybe a couple of days ago, knowing what's been in the headlines in the past week. But to make a difference, we must be different in a way that is both liberating and constraining. As we've acknowledged, this is a difficult passage, and it would be much easier to ignore. But it's important that we wrestle with this, because I think it suggests a way to engage with the world around us from a place of surrender to God. It suggests that when we trust him with our lives, we have nothing left to lose, which of course is the way that Jesus lived and died. Wholly surrendered to a higher authority, deeply rooted in a greater love then we can be fearless in our choices and even risk our reputations for his sake and the sake of those around us. What I think this suggests is a more radical form of submission that the world rarely sees. One way to illustrate this might be the image of someone taking the knee. On the outside, it even looks submissive and may seem humiliating, naive, and entirely foolish. But here is a man that is playing by the rules in every way, and at the same time, defying everything that is expected of him 
in that moment because of a bold commitment to a greater cause. One rather confused politician in response to this said, it feels to me like a symbol of subjugation and subordination rather than one of liberation and emancipation. Hmm, what about this one? Slide. Here in the crucifixion, we see the ultimate act of radical submission. How could the God of the universe subject himself to such corrupt and unjust authority? And yet how defiant an act, how liberating, how earth-shattering, how world-changing. Voluntarily laying down his life was a radical act of submission which defies all the powers of any age. And the wider biblical narrative tells us other parts of the same story. Tales of living quietly in exile as well as overthrowing pharaohs serving in the courts of empire and spending the night in a lion's den. All this suggests an active engagement with the existing systems and authorities in our lives while maintaining this posture of radical submission. There is in the gospel a call to endurance and resistance at work here. Even with the Psalms as our guide, we see neither passive resignation to an unjust status quo or an angry turning away from God. Instead, we see complaint and lament in times of suffering and hardship, always turned towards God, always expectant of his intervention in anticipation of mercy and justice. Elsewhere, we are instructed to pray for those in authority, and today we have the freedom to participate in a democratic process, as well as to actively work against injustice. But whether we are more inclined to anarchy or apathy, we are called to learn how to live faithfully. The big question for us, I think, is how will we use our freedom? Are we just progressive postmodems for who truth is what I feel today, easily activated by slogans and sound bites, fake news and other people's followers? Or do our roots run deeper than that? Are we more willing to protest about injustice than to participate in the slow, hard work of loving our neighbor? Or are we too willing to be peacekeepers that we miss the call in our life to be peacemakers? Are we willing to be defined by our identity in Christ, who encourages us to pay our taxes and turn the other cheek, whilst turning over tables and submitting to the worst kind of punishment? Who do we serve and who will we trust? Our best response that I would like to suggest is Peter's response to an unjust world is not to flee from it and certainly not to become like it, but to live very different lives and to demonstrate what a loving, fearless, sacrificial community looks like, one that is founded on the cross of Christ. In an essay on this passage, theologian Miroslav Volf writes, The call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them ever would have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core.
The only way to do this, the only way to live this life like Jesus, to hold that radical posture of submission, to turn towards God, to seek justice in a way that reflects his mercy and justice, is to daily reorientate ourselves around the cross of Christ and to take seriously his example. In doing so, we are transformed by his presence and empowered by his spirit because surrender to him remains our greatest challenge. And how are we going to do that? The only way to figure out what that looks like in this day and age is to do that together, is to do that in community, to wrestle with these things together, to stand alongside one another, to weep and grieve when we see abuses of authority, to speak courage to one another, to speak truth to power, and truly live like a loving, fearless, sacrificial community in light of the love of God. Should we stand? Can I invite the band back in Battersea and Westside and here as well too? That'd be great. I recognize that this is a difficult and a different kind of passage this morning, but um, the Lord is here and speaking to many of us. Some of us have experienced abuses of authority and it's right that we grieve those and that we're angry with those, whether they're in the past or the present or they're things that we've observed in other people's lives that may seem far off for us. Many of us carry a lot of anger and frustration at the moment about what we see when we do read the headlines and when we do try to engage with the world as it is. And I would really invite you to bring that with you into the room this morning if that's something that you think has no place in church. For many of us, we need to receive comfort from the Lord this morning, comfort from the places where we've struggled, where we've been hurt or where we see oppression in other places and other people's lives. And some of us need courage. I think the Lord is speaking to some of us this morning about courage, about how we stand up, about how we step forward, about how we stand alongside one another. And I want to encourage you as we worship right now to maybe think on those things, to maybe think how this might apply to you, if it's comfort or courage or perhaps both that you need this morning and to know that the Lord is here and that the Lord is speaking to you, that he sees your circumstances, that he knows your heart, and that he has a way forward for you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Tune in next week for another life-giving message from one of our Vineyard 61 speakers.